No, am I good? All right. Well, good morning, everyone. From me, as Clay said, I'm Josh. Welcome, everyone, to those from me to those online. I found out last night that my wife was telling people around the world to uh, tune in, literally, some international folks, maybe. You might hit our highest stream on Facebook of like 12 today. So we'll see. Uh, but I'm going to jump in. I'm going to try to cover a little bit of ground today. Clay actually told me that I should uh, re-preach my first sermon because it's been a long time. There's a lot of new people and no one will remember how bad or short that it was. I'm kidding. He didn't say all of that. Um, but the truth is actually in the beginning of that, I, I made fun of Ken Grenfell because he told me on his first time that he preached, it lasted 12 minutes. And I said, well, Ken, I can go 13. And I did, just barely, so I won, if it's a competition, just to be clear. Uh, so I'm going to try to cover a little bit of ground. I'm gonna, actually going to do some of that message today, a bit of it. Um, thank you, Jacob. And uh, some, mix them in some new material, maybe a little bit more old and new, and kind of see where it goes. But I know a bunch of people have prayed, but I've got the mic, so I'm going to do it one more time. So that's the way it's going to be. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share, and I'm going to Say what's on my heart, Lord, but I yield my agenda to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to start is sharing something that uh, profoundly changed my wife. It actually, I said wife, life, both, <laughs> and uh, actually changed the trajectory of my life. So I'll set the stage. This was back for me in 2005. I was a couple years out of school, and I was doing well in my career. I'd moved into management, um, and I was single, and just, you know, I had a, a very serious girlfriend. That was kind of my MO. I never really dated around. I liked having girlfriends. I thought it was practice because I wanted to be a husband. For uh, Even since I was younger, I thought I would be a pretty good husband. You have to ask her if that's true today. I'm still working on it, I guess. Uh, but that was kind of my MO. I had this kind of plan, and I said, okay, I'm going to marry her. I can see how my life is going to work out. This is what I'm going to do. So I had this plan, and then I uh, go to what they called a business breakfast with Rick Warren. And the guy who wrote A Purpose Driven Life. And uh, Rick was fantastic. And while it may have been him speaking, it was really God speaking directly into my heart. And I was getting revelation in a way I was unfamiliar with. And so I didn't really know what to do. So I got a copy of that message and I started to listen to it. And I listened to it exclusively for about a year. I mean, I literally didn't listen to music. I didn't listen to anything else in the car. And I sometimes get into this, I don't necessarily live that intensely about everything. Uh, but I literally, I was commuting into Boston at the time, and my commute was a little over an hour, and the message was like 50-some minutes. So I literally could listen to it all the way through, plus some on the way in, and all the way through, plus some on the way home. And, you know, God was just speaking to me through it. I could feel it. And I just needed to marinate in it. And so I literally didn't do anything uh, but that. I want to share a little bit about that and how it started to work in my life. And so if you want to read along with your Bibles, uh, we're going to be kind of hopping all over Scripture today. We're going to start in the Old Testament. We're going to start in Exodus. And we're going to start in 3, which I'll summarize for you. And we'll read a little bit of 4 together. And so in Exodus 3, Moses was coming down the mountain. Actually, he was tending uh, the flock. He was tending the sheep. He was tending the flock of his brother-in-law, Jethro. So he was, did I say brother-in-law? Father-in-law, thank you. It's good to have people that know scripture, right? Um, so he's tending the, the flock and he sees uh, the burning bush. So he walks over to that and says, this is interesting. 
And God starts speaking to him. He says, take off your shoes. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then what's great is he goes into really great detail of what he wants Moses to do, right? He wants him to set free, of course, Israel. And Moses is interesting here. He has a few questions. And actually he starts, uh, no, he has no faith. He starts whining and complaining through this. And God is so patient. He actually just kind of lays, he actually tells him everything that's going to happen. So he gets a nice clear picture. But it's not how, at least in my life, God typically works. I don't get to always see everything like Moses did. And, uh, you know, Moses actually started struggling with it even more. And that's where we get to Exodus uh, 4. And we're going to do 2 through 5, if they can throw it up on the uh, screen behind me. Then the Lord said, what is in your hand? And we're going to stop here for a second because we serve a God that is almighty, right? He knows what's in Moses' hand. So when he asks us a question, it's not for his benefit. He doesn't need the answer, but he wants us to understand something, right? So it's for Moses' benefit. And so he says, what is in your hand? And Moses says, it's a staff. And God says, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake. And then we know what happens in the rest of it, right? He says, pick it back up. So he picks up the staff and it becomes a piece of wood again. It becomes a staff. So when God asks us a question, it's not for his benefit. And when he performs a miracle, it's not to show off. It's to illustrate something. And for Moses, his staff represented three things. And this is what we're going to be talking about today in a lot of different ways. It represented his identity, his influence, and his income. And since Moses' brother was actually Aaron, I'm going to ask Aaron if he could bring my prop over for me. <laughs> Do a good job. Thank you. So this is not Moses' staff, but uh, it's a, a reflection of it. So I just wanted to use it as a prop today. So it represented his three things. It represented his identity, this, who Moses was. He was a shepherd. And I believe that if we were back then, it would have been one of the ways that you would recognize, like if there was three of them laying down there, you would have said, oh, that's Moses' staff. That's not Joshua's staff or Aaron's staff. That's Moses's. And it would have been his influence. This is how he got sheep to go where they were going, by hook or by crook. This is why we don't have wives that are shepherds, because I would not want this in my wife's hand at certain times. And it represented his income. This is how he made money. He was a shepherd by trade. So what's God saying here? I think he's saying, Moses, I want you to take your identity, your income, and your influence, and I want you to lay it down before me. And if you do, it will become alive. But if you try to pick it back up again, it'll become a piece of wood again. It'll become an inanimate object. Can I give this back to you so I don't trip over it? Thank you. Just kidding. No, not giving it to Rachel. All right. So Moses did lay it down. And we can see later in scripture, in the New King James Version, that they didn't refer to it as a staff anymore. It was called the rod of God. Even in verse 20 in the same chapter. And it was the rod of God that Moses held up and split the sea. It was the rod of God that Moses struck the rock and gave water to the Israelites. And my favorite version of it is in Exodus 17.9. Moses says to Joshua, choose us, choose us some men. Go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. See, I believe Joshua knew exactly what was going to go down after that point. 
So this was a really awesome concept to me. I understood it right away, but I couldn't make it make sense for me. I didn't work with my hands. I didn't have something that I could hold and say, this is my identity, this is my influence, this is my income. And so I kept asking God, what's in my hand? For some of you, you may already be thinking what the answer is. If I asked Tom Brady, or if Tommy asked Brett Favre because he likes him a lot, what would they say? It's, it's football, right? That's their identity, that's their influence, that's their income. Or if you asked a professional basketball player like LeBron James or Steph Curry or even Michael Jordan, it's really easy. It's a basketball. Tiger Woods, Wayne Gretzky, Ovechkin, Jeff Bezos. They have easy answers to these questions. But it, it's easy for to see them. But I couldn't make sense of it. I was a single guy. I was doing well in my career. I moved into management. And I couldn't answer it. And uh, I didn't get the Moses-like experience where I whined and complained to God. And then he laid it all out for me. I actually just kept struggling with it. So during that year that I listened to it every day, all day, no matter what I was doing, I'm about seven months in. So I estimate that I've heard it 300 times at this point. And I just keep saying, what's in my hand? Now I'm crying out, Lord, I really want to know. Please tell me what is in my hand. And then I just hear, break up with your girlfriend. And so I say, great, seriously, but what is in my hand? I'm dating her for like four years. Just please tell me what's in my hand. And I just get the same answer. Break up with your girlfriend. And why, while I don't want to compare myself to Moses, like him at the burning bush, I had a few questions. See, I spent all of my non-working time with her and her family. I ate dinner pretty much every night at their house. I had just moved all the way so that I could be closer living in the same town with them. I left my entire friends group and that's you know, I didn't have a young family that took a lot of my time. I'm an extrovert. I like to do those types of things. And I just moved to where I didn't have any of them. And so I, I couldn't make sense of this of that answer. I just said, Lord, I don't know how to do that. I can't do it. You see, my identity outside of my professional life was with her. And so I didn't get God telling me everything he had planned. I couldn't see the whole picture like Moses did in Exodus 3 and 4. So he sent the next best thing. He sent my father, a very godly man with some wisdom. So I could have some advice. And so I had gone to New Jersey because remember I was living in Massachusetts at the time. I had to go to a wedding and he said, let's go bowling. I said, okay, I can show you how to do that. And so we went bowling and source the subject of my girlfriend came up. And so I said, okay, Bob, I feel like I'm supposed to break up with her. And then I told him all the reasons why, why I was struggling with that. And he made it look so easy. He just said, you know, God doesn't always let you see the second step until you take the first one. And when you step in faith, God often accelerates the next few. I can tell you now standing here, that is absolutely true. I found that to be very true in my life. Simply put, it's called obedience. And we're not going to get into that any further today. But I'll just say that God's truths are revealed through obedience. And John chapter 8 says that the truth will set you free. That's right. You guys are a good audience. Only half of you, I think, are asleep, so I'll try harder and get the rest of you down. All right, so what my dad said made a lot of sense, and I said, okay, I'm going to do it. Still took two weeks to, to muster up and get it done. So the step of faith for me was laying down my identity. And, you know, as most breakups go, it wasn't exactly fun. And this is in August of 2005 now. 
And within two weeks, I found out I was going to be transferred to our corporate office here in Virginia. And in that four-month period before I left, I was going to start in January. I had the most amazing time. Remember, I had just moved, so I had no friends. God brought me lifelong friends within one week of that breakup. We were only together four months in the same town. I was in their weddings. They were in, my, in mine years later. I was having such a good time that I started to question God. I don't think I'm going to move. But thankfully, I did. I moved in January, and six months later, I met my wonderful, beautiful wife. And a little over six months after that, my career took an upwards trajectory. I was already doing well, and to be honest, I was making more money than my friends. But the next year, my income doubled. Being obedient to what God asked me to do, which was, will you lay your identity down? It actually affected the other areas of my staff, my influence, friends, more family, started my own family, I had more employees, and it affected my income. So what is in your hand? And will you lay it down so that it can become alive? Some of you may have an easy answer to this question, and some of you have maybe already thinking, I don't know the answer to that. It may be more like my experience. For some of you, the answer will be your children. For some of you, it will be your marriage or your job, or your friends, or your family. What is brilliant about this is it's actually not a one-time question. What's in your hand today, or what's in my hand today, wasn't in my hand in 2005. And what's in your hand 10 years from now may not be as easy to lay down as it is right now. I know that because I've tried several times, and you may have to lay it down more than once. So now if you're starting to wonder what's in your hands and you're not getting an answer, let me give you a couple examples that may just start to bring some revelation to you. Because in, uh, it can be simple, right? It doesn't have to be something that you struggle with. And in David's hands, it was a slingshot and a harp. In Samson's hands, it was a jawbone. What we have in our hands when yielded to God can come to life, can bring life, and it can even multiply. In John chapter 6, we see a little boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. Lord, I don't have much. What I have, I give to you. Sorry. And look at Peter uh, 4, or no, look at Peter in Matthew 4. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, Galilee and he sees Peter and Andrew. They were fishermen. Their identity, their income, their influence. Jesus says, Come, follow me. The Bible says they left their nets. To me, that sounds like another way of saying they laid it down. And I will make you fishers of men. Literally coming alive. In Matthew 25, we see the parable of the talents. For the kingdom of, I'm just going to read this part to you. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who has called his own servants and delivered goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to the last one one, each according to their own ability. Remember that part. And immediately he went out on a journey. And when the one who had received the five talents, he went and traded with them. And, to the, and he made another five talents. Likewise, the one who had received two talents uh, doubled again. And the one that received the one talent, well, he went and dug a hole and buried it in the ground. So the first two servants just did what they naturally knew how to do. They bought some things, they sold some things, and they multiplied what God had given them, or the master had given them. And 
you know, just by doing what they knew how to do by their own ability, God multiplied it. Or that's the illustration, sorry, of the story. Now, the third guy, he just buries it in the sand. So later on, it's the same thing it was what it was. See, he didn't lay it down. And what I really love about this parable, actually, is that it just illustrates that money is a spiritual force. And it will gravitate towards those who know how to handle it. And it can be taken away from those who don't. Because when the master came back, he went to the one who buried it in the sand, and he took it, and he gave it to the guy who produced the most. So what you do with your money matters. You have a choice. You can actually go out and buy somebody a cup of coffee or some food that's struggling in life. Or you can choose to go buy an ounce of cocaine and cause some destruction. I realize economically those are not the same things. I'm just trying to provide you some contextual <laughs> contrast for the illustration. All right. You guys are not falling asleep. I'm loving this. So, uh, Money is a spiritual force. What you do with it matters. And I've heard it said that you can't outgive God. All I know is that I'm trying. So my advice is just be generous. Okay. What is in your hand? Will you lay it down so that it can become alive? Some of you may be still wondering about that. So we're going to get into some practical examples now in the New Testament in our everyday life. And this is really going to focus on the second one, which is influence. All right. So now... And we're going to follow Jesus in this, in this example. So now we're in chapter 10, and I'm going to summarize this part for you of uh, Matthew. And Jesus is talking to his posse, and he says, go out, heal the sick, feed the poor, raise the dead, drive out demons. Super easy, super literal. We know what to do. So I think it's helpful to do a little bit of study here because this is the posse of apostles. And so let's study what the, the root word of that would have meant. The first root word of the use of the root word, rather, of the word apostle would have been apostolos. And the apostolos was the lead ship in the Phoenician navy. And this was a strategy later adopted by the Romans and the Greeks. And it was the admiral on the lead ship on an expedition to colonize a territory that had already been conquered. Why is this important? I should have turned notifications off. Uh, why is this important? Well, let's look at Napoleon, because I don't think that guy was known for really being a theologian or a great preacher, but that guy knew a thing or two about warfare. We can agree on that. And here's what he said. The purpose of warfare is victory, and the purpose of victory is occupation. Because if you don't occupy the territory, it will be yielded back to whoever had it prior to the victory. Now, I'm sure we've seen this time and time again, even in church or with people. Or with revivals. My favorite story is the Welsh revival. And it was a move that swept an entire nation. Yet a hundred years later, there was almost nobody in church. It means it had no lasting effect. How many of you have had a friend even, or yourself, that struggles with an area, gets breakthrough, and is right back where they were hours, days, weeks, months later? I want to celebrate victory. We really should. But we need to have a strategy of how you stay through when you break through. Because otherwise, it's as good as no breakthrough later anyway. So we're talking about occupying the territory. The first and final objective of the apostolos was to recreate the culture of the one that had sent them. So when the king or the emperor or the ruler or whoever would arrive, 
uh, and we'll use the Romans for example. This side of the church can be the Romans today. When Caesar would arrive in the occupied territory of either Philippi or Colossia, he would look around. And he would look around at the postal system and the monetary system and the marketplaces and the, the you know, indoor plumbing. And he would have said, yeah, okay, this looks a lot like Rome. You guys get to be the Greeks. So we use Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great would arrive in the occupied territory and he would look around for schools and libraries and see philosophy happening. Is that Greek language I hear? Yeah. This looks a lot like home. Jesus Christ is the apostle of our faith. He came from heaven in order to invade the humosphere, in order to uh, bring the culture of heaven down here on earth. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He was the admiral of an armada, which is you and me coming behind him to occupy his conquest. He said, feel, feel, uh, he said, heal the sick, feed, the, no, feed the sick. I wrote it wrong. <laughs> feed the poor, heal the sick, raise the dead, drive out demons, and bless you all, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go sit at the right hand of the Father. But I'm coming back. And when I do, it should look a lot like home. So we're talking about influencing the culture for the kingdom. How does that apply to us today? I think it depends on what your calling is, and I think it's important to touch on this subject, because when I was coming up in the 80s and 90s, I didn't hear anything about really people in business and doing ministry, right? It was looking at the guys that were going to go be Bible majors. He's going into missions. Oh, look at the call of God on his life. And they were first class. And then if you were called to slug it out in the marketplace, well, you were sitting in coach. But it's okay because somebody has to tithe to keep the lights on and to feed the man of God's vision. <laughs> but that's how I felt. And so... The reality is, and the truth is, there's no second string players in the body of Christ. And the final move of God will be when the saints take the kingdom, not the preachers. When I heard that, it changed everything for me. So let's talk about business because I think it's actually harder to have apostolic influence in business. Because sometimes people in ministry like Clay just get to be super spiritual all the time. I'm kidding. He's, he is, but he's actually very practical. Because if you're not practical, Kevin, in the marketplace with a competitor, they'll eat your lunch. Right? So we have to handle the spiritual as well as the natural. So we're talking about the supernatural. So I'm going to throw out a few names. And when you hear that name and you think they had a supernatural calling on their life, I'd like you to raise your hand. Ken Grenfell, Bill Johnson, Jesus Christ, Peter, James, Paul. Wow, you guys really don't raise your hands. It's great. Keep your hands down. Uh, now raise your hand if you think you have a supernatural calling on your life. Not the response I was hoping for. Keep your hands down. If your hand isn't raised right now, you have a supernatural calling on your life. Because it's not business or ministry. It's a supernatural calling on your life following Jesus in whatever business or vocation or position you're in. And by the way, no matter what stage you're in, you should be having fun. There's a supernatural calling on your life. I'm called to do business. Just because I am doesn't mean everyone is. We're just called to occupy the territory that we're in, whatever that is. I will not leave out stay-at-home mothers, not just because I'm married to one. But you guys have the hardest job, Chelsea, in the entire world. Yeah. I would know. I have four daughters. I am married to a superwoman. 
Unfortunately, she has gotten sick in the past. And I've had to stay home from work for a couple of days in a row. <laughs> After nursing her back to health, I really felt like no one should live like this. <laughs> so I'm back at work. But bless you all, you guys have the hardest job in the world. All right, we're talking about the supernatural. So what we're talking about is God putting something super on top of the natural. But the assumption is that the natural things, our natural tendencies, our natural ability, like the parable was saying, are in working order. It's literally just what's in your hand. The natural tendencies and the gifts that God has given to us. What can you do? What do you just know how to do? If you know me at all, you would know that I'm not handy. It is. I don't hide it. I own it. And at this stage of my life, I'm almost proud of it. I can't do that. If that's you, awesome. I can't do that. But God, what I can do is this. And I give it to you. Use me. Make me come alive in you. That's what I care about. So we're talking about the natural tendencies and the gifts that we have in working order. Because God wants to put the, natural, or the supernatural on top of it. And God doesn't want to add rocket fuel to something. He doesn't want to give us dreams, interpretations, tongues, prophecy, just to boom, blow up in flight. He doesn't give us gifts to leave us in a worse state than we were prior to getting them. So we're talking about what's in our hands. That's our influence, the second thing. How do we do that in our everyday life? Because we can all go out for coffee, and Clay just gave an example a few weeks ago about uh, going into a coffee shop and feeling like he was supposed to pray for somebody. And uh, we can go do that, and we should. But what they're not going to do is say, come fix this register problem I'm having, or go back in the kitchen and fix what's happening there, even if we know how to do it. Why? Well, because we don't work there. It's pretty simple. We don't have a right to be there. But if you're called to do business and you're called in that area, then you're called to have influence. God wants to partner with you and me to impact the business aspects of culture. But we can't do it from a distance. We have to be inside the occupied territory. And God will give you strategies. Let me back this up biblically. David is a businessman tending sheep, another, another shepherd with his staff. And his father says, go bring your brother's lunch into the battlefield. And so he comes and he sees the giant manifesting. He sees Goliath. I'm like, why aren't we dealing with this? And we know the story. Uh, Saul gives David his armor and he is 15. He's like my size and he can't... Um, he can't operate in it, right? And so he's like, I can't do this. Whatever, I got this. And uh, if this is in uh, Samuel 17, if you look at Samuel 18, what's interesting is that David is made a captain. So what happened then? David had to be inducted into the army in order to fight Goliath. He had to fight Goliath not as a shepherd. He used the shepherd's tools, what was in his hand. But he did it with an army uniform. So he had to have jurisdiction to be out there. Goliath's challenge was, if one of you in your army fights me... And you win, we'll be your slaves, and vice versa the other way. So he had to fight Goliath representing the government, the army of Israel. He couldn't do it from a distance. So we have to use the influence inside the territory. And this just isn't in business. Or at being a stay-at-home mom. It doesn't matter if you're in a PTA or an HOA or anything that ends in an A. Uh, if you're in a nonprofit, a charity, a school group, a peer group, or a spin class at the gym, you have the authority to be there. You have the right to be there. Whatever your sphere of influence is, what's in your hand? 
Whatever the sandbox is that you get to play in every day, you have the authority to be there to influence the culture for the kingdom. And God will give you strategies for dealing with business issues or strategies for dealing with problems the world hasn't even solved yet. So let's talk about that a little more because we need to want to have the super on top of the natural. And we need to have our natural things in working order to sustain the supernatural moving through it. And of course, the best example is Jesus. So we're going to quickly, this is, I'm running out of time, it feels, even though I speak very fast. Uh, we're going to read Luke 4, 1 through 8, if we could pop it up. And I'm just going to start. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And when it had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, remember this part, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus said to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And then, then, then the devil took him up high on a mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world. And in a moment of time, and the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory for this has been delivered to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus said the salient line, get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Okay, so Jesus goes into the desert, or into the wilderness, for 40 days to be tested by the devil. Before he had invaded any territory, he was searched out by the enemy to see what areas the enemy had control of him in. And out of the battle of the 40 days, this period of testing, there was no yet real manifestation about what Jesus' purposes or capabilities were. There was just a conflict over his identity. The first one of our staff. And so for this season, he was being uh, tested, and this is important to get, about who he was before he had done what he was capable of doing. Had any of you had the enemy taunting you or jeering you or provoking you about who you think you are because you've yet to produce the thing that God called you to do? Maybe you're in your wilderness stage. And that's okay because the wilderness is good. The purpose of the wilderness is to enable the anointing to permeate you for your assignment. See, Jesus went into the desert full of the Spirit. So this is the first part of getting the super part of the natural. And there's some great sermons that Clay has done on this before about getting filled up and all the emphasis on resting and soaking. Um, so like Jesus did, when you get filled with the Spirit, God does a saturating of you that produces a quality of rest in you that gives you the extra something working for you when the enemy comes against you. I'm going to say that one more time. God does a saturating of you it produces a quality of rest in you that gives you the extra something working for you when the enemy comes against you. But Jesus here, tell me if I move that wrong, sorry. Uh, but Jesus here in Luke, the devil tempted him and he resisted. So what does it tell us? He went in filled with the spirit. We need to get filled. And then he, what does he say when, when the devil tempts him? For it is written. He says it twice. Which tells us what? The key to avoiding temptation it's written right here. This is all we need to know. What's written right here. See, Jesus went into the wilderness filled with the Spirit, but came out of the wilderness, in verse 14, in the power. See, the wilderness stage is just a part of the process where God transforms you from potential to manifest actual. Amen. He went into the wilderness with something on him. He came out with something moving through him. And he hadn't even done a miracle yet. The enemy said, if you are... 
if you really are the son of God, then demonstrate, do something. But he didn't fight based on any performance or anything he had done because he hadn't done a miracle yet. He won based on the clarity of his identity and his conviction of the calling from the father. The enemy was wrestling with Jesus to see if he had anything in him. But what was the battle? If you are, if you are, this was just a battle over identity, identity, influence, income. I'm just going to keep saying it. All right. So the first stronghold that the enemy tried to wrestle with in the mind of Jesus was really whether he was who he had claimed to be without having a track record or anything to prove it. Of course, I'm sure he had the knowledge of the virgin birth or whatever his mother was telling him. And his what? His relationship with the father, his communion with God, which tells us that our relationship with the father is the key to engaging in the supernatural. Because Jesus said, I only know what the father tells me or what he shows me, what he tells me to say. Okay, Jesus comes out of the wilderness in the power. And this is in Luke chapter five, if you want to read it later. He gets on Peter's boat and he says, take it out again into the deep. And uh, I love Peter because he's like, Master, we were out all night when fishing works. See, fish typically get caught in the net when they don't see it. And you want us to go out during the day. I'm just telling you as a fisherman, that's not the best time to cast the net. But nevertheless, we'll do it. Well, what happens, Peter? They catch so much fish that their boat starts to sink. And they're waving to the shoreline to their business partners, bring more boats. See, when you lay down what's in your hand, and when you're doing business God's way, God can cause marketplace dynamics to be manipulated in such a way that even common sense will be humbled by the supernatural. It's laying down our income. The first miracle of Jesus for the disciples' sake was a business miracle. Why? Because he's the Lord of the marketplace too. It's identity, it's influence, and it's income. It's not business or ministry. It's using whatever is in your hand for the glory of God. I'm going to give you an example by Norval Hayes. He died a few years ago, I think in 2018. He was a great man, a businessman, very successful businessman. He was a Bible teacher. He founded ministries all over the world. And God would call to him, or God would speak to him and say, uh, go down to Fort Lauderdale and during spring break where everything's getting wild and hand out tracks. Just go down there and do it. Or he would say, go to the poorest part of town and hand out groceries. And on the flight home, God would give him a quarter of a million dollar business innovation or the answer to a problem he wasn't able to solve yet because it's not business or ministry it's a supernatural calling on your life and whatever god's given you whatever is in your hand he was just ministering and the business came to him what is in your hand the second time jesus wrestles with something isn't in the wilderness it's in the garden he wrestled with what was about to happen until he sweat blood until literally blood pressed out of the capillaries of his skin and in John chapter 14, verse 30, he says to the disciples, the prince of this world's coming, but he has nothing in me. A literal translation would be, he has no hooks in me. You see, on one hand, Jesus had come to take Israel, and in the wilderness, he had a 40-day pre-qualification test for that. And he came out stronger than when he went in. He came in filled, he came out in the power. He came out stronger than when he went in, because the conflict only worked the calling through him. But now, the stakes are much bigger. He's going to take the sins of this world. In the wilderness, Satan offered him world kingdoms, and he refused. Now, he's going to take the kingdoms by force. And Satan knows, in the spirit realm, the challenge has been laid down. He must stop 
this man. And in his demented, twisted idea, he just conceives of an idea that if man can kill God, it would be deicide, the ultimate act of rebellion, greater than the rebellion of Lucifer himself. But uh, Lucifer couldn't get his hands on God in the wilderness. He tried, but man can. And so if he can incite man to murder and betray their own Messiah, surely he would have dominion over earth locked up. But the, Jesus, but the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit had a plan. And they didn't reveal it. It's that he must die on that cross in order to succeed in destroying the power of death. Jesus said, the prince of this world's coming. But he has nothing in me. See, the whole world was one because the enemy had no territory on the inside of the man of God. Business is great. I love what I do. And there's nothing wrong with it. And God is interested in our success. He really is. He's just not as interested in it as he is in the transformation of our personality to conformity in the image of Christ. And like Jesus, we will have tests. And the purpose of the test is just to qualify you for what's coming. Because you can't practice medicine or be a lawyer without passing a test. You can't drive a car legally anyway without passing a test. So there's nothing wrong with tests. And sometimes your worst hour is just part of the legal process of testing you for the next hour. Let's go back to David. He's at Ziklag and he's an outcast. He's on the run. He's lost his wife. His troops are thinking of stoning him. And what does it say? He says he strengthened himself in the Lord. The worst hour when he's lost everything and his troops are about to, to stone him, he strengthens himself in the Lord. The next day Saul dies and he becomes king. So what does this tell him? When we have tests and things get tough, Go to the Lord. See, I, I know the saying is, when the tough get going, the, the going get tough. I like when, the tough, when it gets tough, go to the Lord. Or the tough go to the Lord. That's what David did. So when we get filled with the Spirit, pass our tests, and operate in the power, like Jesus, we can then spread the culture of heaven through our areas of influence. To do that, we need a, a discernment. It's a powerful tool. Let me give you an example. Have you ever been in the elevator with somebody and you really wanted to get out? It's like a low-level area of discernment. Here's a really interesting view on this. Stanford University out in Silicon Valley does a study. And they take five people, four people with a neutral emotional state, and uh, one person who's depressed. I don't know where they got him, but they got a depressed person. And they put him in a room for 15 minutes, no talking. How many of you like me could definitely not be a part of the study? So they knew they were being surveyed, but they didn't know why. Right? So they, they, 15 minutes, they come out and they survey them again. And the, and the depressed person is just as depressed as when they went in. And the four neutral people are more depressed. And they say, this is interesting. Let's do it again with a different disposition. So they get an angry person. I don't know where they got the angry person. My assumption is they get the depressed person. They give them a, they give them a Will Smith slap across the face. <laughs> Too soon. And, uh, and, and send them in. And uh, 15 minutes again, no talking. When they come out, the Will Smith slapped person is just as angry as when they went in. And the four neutral people are more angry than when they went in. And here's what they took away from this. It says not that uh, depression or anger is contagious. It's that the peak emotional state is contagious. He who has the dominant state influences, number two, the passive. See, when you come into contact with people, you leave a residue. And whatever spiritual atmosphere is the most contagious will take over the real estate. Now, the Bible says that Jesus would baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
And this is important because the characteristic of fire is that it's a penetrating, non-negotiable influence that comes... Let me read it. I don't want to mess it up. It's a penetrating, non-negotiable influence that vibrates at such a pitch that whatever comes into contact with it is changed by interaction. See, when you carry the presence of Jesus, our ultimate assignment, and the most dominant force, because nothing is more dominant than the name of Jesus, then we can influence the culture through our areas or our sphere of influence. And God can give you discernment of what's happening in business, what's happening in the people and the environment around you. If we can just show ourselves to be trustworthy, how do we do that? We just don't use that information to harm the other person. Let me back up the, the Stanford study biblically. King Saul was delirious with a spirit that tormented him. Yet when little David played the harp that was in his hand, the king was calm and the spirit would leave. What was happening? In the radius of David's influence, he bound the operation of spirits tormenting the king. See, when people come into contact with you through your sphere of influence, you not only can discern what's happening in them and the environment, you have the authority to bind it so that the force of favor can be released. You make me cry. They just feel better being in your presence. They don't even know why. They don't know what to call it. They just want to be around you. Because we're called to take every area or territory, the sole of our, the place or the sole of our foot treads. Now it's written in Joshua, and I'm pretty sure the New Testament's written on a better covenant with better promises than the Old Testament. Therefore, I assume, like Joshua, there's a greater fulfillment for us. Because we haven't seen every place the sole of our foot treads. But that's our assignment. See, God desires to make your identity, your influence, and your income come alive. And I'm not standing here as somebody that's laid it down every time and got it all right. But I am standing here having experienced it to be real and true. So if you're struggling trying to answer, what's in my hand? If you're struggling in areas of identity or your influence or your income, and you want it to come alive, I want to encourage you to come down and get prayer. If you want breakthrough, or just encouragement in that area, or to get filled so you can receive the gifts of the supernatural. I want you to come forward. In fact, don't wait. Come now. I want to thank you for the opportunity to share with you. Come forward if you want some of that prayer, and I'll get to each one of you individually. Thank you. So, wonderful. Now, I can't do that. Hello? Because that's not my sphere. Hello? That's good. If I try to be like him, oh, I'd fail. If he tried to be like me, definitely. definitely. Amen. Amen. Friends, there's such a disparagement between the business world and ministry that is not in here. That's why I asked him to preach this, because he carries favor here, and it's where most of you live every single day. And to bring the kingdom of God into that atmosphere is such an important, wonderful thing. So I'm going to ask again, if you 
would like him to pray. I think there were so many people, not that I'm trying to get a bigger response, but I felt in my heart like everyone should be standing. And I know that there's those who want specific prayer, which we'd love to do. But I wonder if we could all stand real quick. And I'm just going to ask Josh to pray for us, because this is one of those messages that you, you could listen to over and over and over and pray through and think through. And, um, but every single one of you have a sphere of influence. When I went into ministry, it was one of the greatest wrestles I had because I was doing well in business and I was making money and it was all great. But it was a major wrestle for me in my heart. And I had to be sure. And in fact, my dad, and I haven't ever said this publicly, said to me, be very careful if you go into ministry. Make sure. And I'm so glad that he said that. That doesn't mean that I can't one day, in a sense, go into business. William Wilberforce used to have dreams of slaves, dreams and visions of slaves and chains. And he thought maybe he should be a preacher. And some people came to him and he said, I don't know if I should be in ministry or if I should do business. And they looked at him and they said, sir, we're asking you to do both. And he set the slaves free. God used that man in his sphere of influence to change the world. I could go through example, John G. Lake, an opposite example. He had so much money. He had tons of money. And the Lord told him to give it all away. And he went into ministry. And yet there's people who are very wealthy in ministry. We get so boxed in our head. But the business world is so vital. It's where most of you live and breathe and sleep. And there's nothing, this Holy Spirit is not less in you than in me. And so people think, well, if I'm going to go around and do ministry on the street and I'm going to pray for people in my workplace, listen, that's awesome. But you could bring much more change by just having your sphere of influence and the way you do just what you do. You don't have to stand up and pray for everyone there. Just do what you do with the supernatural on top of it. There are strategies and answers for the problems in the world that I believe exist in God's house. But because we're boxed, they are businessmen called empowered businessmen and women across the world that actually carry solutions to issues that the church can't answer in terms of this kind of environment. Hello? You carry those answers. So I'm going to ask if you can pray for us all just for those three things and, and then... I know you want to do some ministry here. So if you come up front, come real real close so that more people can come. But if you could pray for us all. And I wonder if you could just be ready to receive. Thanks, Josh. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your sons and daughters. And Lord, I just pray a blessing over everyone here and everyone listening online. Lord, that you would begin to reveal who they are, that their identity of who they are and who they've become in Christ Jesus. And open doors of their influence, Lord, that they may spread the culture of your kingdom here on earth. I bless them, Lord, and I speak a double portion in areas of their income. And we release this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week. I'm going to start on this side and I'll come on down.
morning, Free Life Church, and happy Sunday. We're glad you've joined us today. We'd love to connect with you. Connection cards are a great way to let us know you're new to us, any needs or comments you may have, or how we can best connect with you. To submit a card, simply scan the QR code on the back of the seat or visit the Connect page on our website. And if you're a first-time visitor, please stop by the Connection Corner in the lobby to receive your welcome back. We look forward to meeting you. Join us this Saturday, April 9th for our next Encounter Night at 6.30 p.m. We will be having a wonderful evening of going deeper into worship and praying for our families, community, and our spheres of influence. Child care is provided. We will be hosting a movie night on Tuesday, April 12th. Come and watch the incredible testimony of the most unlikely convert, C.S. Lewis, and his story of grief, loss, and redemption. Visit the link online to find out more details and to register. We are excited to host guest speaker Seth Dahl the weekend of April 22nd to 24th. Seth loves to empower families to build strong connections, fostering peace and a thriving culture. Whether you're a parent or a family looking to create deeper relationships, come be encouraged during this weekend. For all the details and to learn more about Seth, visit the events page on our website. On May 1st, we are excited to share in baby dedications, a time to present our children to the Lord for prayer and blessing in the witness of our congregation. If you and your family would like to be a part of this special moment, please register online. Spanish translation is now available for Sunday services. Just download the app Interactio, enter the event code FLC and listen through your headphones for real-time translation. Ahora tenemos traducción al español en vivo para nuestros servicios de domingo. Simplemente descarga la aplicación Interactio, ingresa el código del evento FLC y escucha a través de tus audífonos para traducción en tiempo real. Stay informed of upcoming events and important announcements by signing up for text updates and our newsletter. Simply text Free Life to 41400 to sign up. And remember, to learn about all our upcoming events, please see the events page on our website. Thanks for joining us today.